Hello, I'm Mariette Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. In this episode, social worker Anneda Laporte shares the heart-rending story of her husband's chronic depression, which lasted for decades and ended in self-death. Annette tells us how she's been processing the loss of her beloved through faith and by applying emotional logic, a practical tool for befriending our emotions. Hello, Annette. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful. Hello, Marie. Thank you for the opportunity. Just to inform our listeners, after our conversation, Annette will give us her three best tips on grieving and then it will be fun question time. Annette, you lost your husband Andre on the 30th of May 2020 and this was after deeply sharing in his journey with depression that lasted 34 years. Please tell us your story. Yes, we started off meeting at university and it was um, uh, happiness ever after was the dream. And uh, those days, the chaplains and the medical doctors first finished their studies because it's long studies before they did their two years of military service. So we were married two years and then went to Pretoria where Andre was a chaplain at the one military hospital. He also went for three years to the hospital in Namibia where the closest place was that injured uh, soldiers would have been brought to from a war situation. After the first three months of being in that border post, he could not remember anything. And of the three months, the second year, he remembered too much. And looking back, I can really see the symptoms of PTSD trauma because he was such a gentle, spirited man, soft-spoken, a true pastoral counsellor that had so much compassion with people in pain, perhaps because he traveled and journeyed with his own pain. Uh, In my book that I wrote two years ago, I talk extensively about the symptoms of depression and perhaps because our listeners do not have the background of the previous podcast we did in Afrikaans, It might be a good thing to just um, point out what you need to look for to identify symptoms of depression in yourself or in your loved ones uh, in your family. So the first thing that always happened with Andre is that he would lose a lot of weight. Uh, That's usually our women's dream to lose weight without uh, a diet. And he seemed to just manage to lose weight, but like shed it from, I remember in the army, he was wearing a size 38 pants. And in two months, he lost until so much weight that he wore a size 32 pants. And immediately we realized, thankfully, we both 
have worked uh, in a psychiatric hospital as part of his training and me as a social worker. And so we knew the symptoms of depression and that something was wrong with such a radical weight loss. Then he had a very severe lack of drive and energy and found it very difficult to concentrate. It was also very hard to get up in the morning. And one of his psychologists taught him the mantra to get up, dress up and show up. And that is what he really managed to do for the eventual 35 years that he did live with chronic depression. The other thing to look out for is a loss of connection, that the person becomes very withdrawn, uh, sometimes almost feel can feel like a personality change for somebody who usually is bubbly, who now just speaks very little. And also um, a total lack of uh, sexual libido or a desire to connect in that sphere. And with that, then simply um, feeling muddled in your thinking. And this was one of the biggest challenges for Andre because he had a brilliant mind. And um, in the, his forward in my book, he wrote that he wake up in the morning with a head that feels like it is filled with cotton wool. And so not to be able to think clearly. And then, of course, the other big problem is to have repetitive thoughts that seems to just circle down with lots of catastrophizing ideas on how things can go wrong and a definite dive in your self-image until you believe many lies about yourself that you are useless. So very, very severe symptoms that impacts on your ability to function as a human being. For me, the metaphor that works is to say that the brain throws a ball to the body, but the body has no hands to catch it. So literally all the functions, thinking, sleeping, eating, concentrating, just goes haywire because of the lack of serotonin and there is therefore that messages that has to happen between the, the brain and the body goes haywire. And it absolutely shows in the person's functioning. And when it is so severe, it is absolutely essential to use an antidepressant to restore the chemical imbalance in the brain and to also then restore functioning. And as I'm talking to you about these symptoms, I'm just aware again of the miracle that Andre really, in spite of journeying with depression for so many years, was able to achieve so much. He was uh, the CEO of an NGO for 22 years. He trained extensively in pastoral counseling and made such a contribution and such an impact on many people's lives. I'm thinking, for example, when he was in the army, at that stage, one military hospital was the, had the biggest burn wound unit in, I think, the southern hemisphere. 
And many of the guys in the army, uh, when there was a bomb, had lots of burn wounds. And this was a, a unit which most of the chaplains avoided working because it smelled of burnt flesh. And people were having intense pain. And when the wounds had to be dressed, it was really traumatic. Andre specialized in the pastoral care of the burn wound patient. And he had so many testimonies of people who were uh, comatose, um, could not respond, was in intensive care. And he would visit them daily, regularly. He would read a scripture to them and he would pray to them. And then weeks later, when they improve and they move to the ordinary unit and he would come to visit them again, they would say, I know your voice. You read scriptures to me. You prayed for me. And so very often, even though people could not respond, he made a difference. He gave other people hope. And I think that that was one of the keys for us. As a couple, we really approached Andres the patient as a team. I would often go along to meetings with a psychiatrist or sessions with a psychologist because we realized this is not a one-man show. This requires support. This requires insight and understanding. And I remember once when we had a session with a psychiatrist, she was very concerned because at that stage, Andre completed a mood chart once a week that he would send to her before a monthly appointment. And she said that when she looked at this mood chart, uh, there's really a necessity to change the medication. Because I was present, I could say, no, it is not necessary. What you see on that mood chart is absolutely the result of financial stress. Andre is worried that there will not be sufficient money to pay his employees at the end of the month. And the moment money would be deposited into the company's account, that mood chart will change drastically. And this is one of the biggest challenges of depression is that the person who journeys with depression loses perspective. And this is, I think, really part and parcel of how the family can support by helping to restore perspective, which is so essential. I often think that our sessions with a psychiatrist was often for her a highlight because we had such a good sense of humor, both of us. And Andre used to call me his funny girl. And I would often make jokes with him and get him to laugh. And he would really play along. And um, he had such a beautiful laughter from the gut um, that we can all remember very clearly still. And so one of the conversations we had once with the psychiatrist, she used to ask him, so how is he? And then she would ask me, how am I doing? 
And I said, we had a visitor this week in the house. And the visitor was one of Snow White's seven dwarfs, <laughs> the one called Grumpy. And after a week, I gave Grumpy an eviction notice and said, <laughs> he needs to leave now. And I want Andre back. And then we would laugh heartily about that because Andre had the capacity to be able to laugh at himself. So humor was really one of our core strengths as a couple and as individuals. And I think part of that was because it was always done with respect. It was never done in any demeaning way. And also because I understood and we spoke so clearly about depression as an illness and also about the role that personality plays. For example, one of the stories in my book is about imaginary friends. I am an absolute giver and there was a day that came that I thought, there's this one couch in our sitting room that we're really not using, so I wanted to give it away to the hospice. So we had a conversation about it standing in the sitting room. And Andre says, well, where will our friends sit if they come to visit? And I said, which friends? Your imaginary friends, they can sit on an imaginary couch. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a standing joke from that time onwards. And I remember my crisis when after living 27 years in Pretoria and having a really good support network of friendships, we moved to Cape Town because Hospital Vision opened an office at Tigerberg Hospital. I had a conversation with God and I told him it's very unfair. Andre can take all his imaginary friends along to Cape Town and I had to leave all my real friends behind in Pretoria. <laughs> so luckily for me, God said, it's okay, I'm coming along to Cape Town. And then I said, well, then I will be all right. And so in this whole journey, we learned to laugh. We learned to cry together. We um, went through long times of very intense disconnection, not because he wanted to, but simply because there was no emotional capacity for connection. And so we worked out practical strategies. My love language is physical touch and personal time. So I had to teach him not to bring me flowers because I didn't want flowers. I wanted him. And his love language was deeds of service, like making him a cup of tea or cleaning up the kitchen if he had, if he'd done some cooking. And, and his other love language was words of appreciation. And so we learned to communicate directly with each other's hearts by talking in the other person's love language. And when Andre was unable to connect emotionally, we would give each other a one-minute hug daily. And I tell you, that was the best hug ever 
because Andre would take me in his arms and he would literally watch on his on his the watch on his arm. And sixty seconds can be beautifully long when that is the best that you are able to give. And I had to learn to stand in the circle of his arms and enjoy that one minute of connection. There were two keys, I think, in how we managed the depression. We talked about it very, very openly and very honestly and very bravely. So much so that when I decided to write a book, only only six stories in the book is about depression. The other stories is about life that happened and how I choose to fill up my glass instead of saying my, my glass is half empty. Uh, the key, I think, was to ask Andre to write a foreword for my book because I realized that otherwise other people who read the book will feel that I might be gossiping about him and saying things behind his back. Um, and we had such an open relationship in really being willing to share everything. We also talked about fantasies and thoughts of suicide when they happened. There were times when we had a no suicide contract and uh, Andre checked in with me regularly. So we literally did everything that was required. There was also seasons when the medication was not effective. And I really want to encourage people that when you've been on a certain type of medication, say for about a month, and you feel no improvement in your symptoms to go back to the doctor, because medication is such an individual thing that has to respond with that specific person's blood levels and that specific person's personality and body. And so there's many, many things to take into account. So do not suffer unnecessarily. The other thing that I want to say about medication, because very oftentimes, specifically Christian says, I just am going to pray and trust the Lord to heal me. I refuse to take an antidepressant. You know, if it can save a person's life, please swallow that antidepressant. Our problem is that we have this distinction between illnesses that is above the neck and illnesses that are below the neck. So if you are a diabetic and you need insulin, there's no problem. Please take it. Stay alive. But if you live with depression, um, and that stems from um, a shortfall in your brain of a chemical imbalance, please don't take an antidepressant. Can you hear how illogical that is? So we really need to step away from the shame that there is still in society about using an antidepressant and to say that an illness that requires medication is still an illness, whether it is in your brain or whether it is in your body. 
And it will really be great if people can simply decide, like I would take an iron tablet when I'm anemic. I am going to take an antidepressant to restore the chemical imbalance in my brain to have a better quality of life. In 2018, I organized a workshop on a theme that I think became for me a personal insight and a turning point in my life. And the theme was disappointment, double point, disaster, detour, or new destination. And after that workshop, I realized that there are some dreams that we have in life that die along the way. And that we need to mourn the dreams that die because they are of equal trauma size as when a person dies. And for me at that stage, at that stage it was um, 33 years that we journeyed with Andre's chronic depression. And I had to mourn the absence of my husband. I had to mourn the disconnection in our marriage, although we still loved each other very, very much. He was simply unable to express that love. And I literally announced a month of mourning for myself. And I found different practical ways to grieve about this dream of um, happy marriage that was stolen by a very, very severe chronic illness. And so I had to learn to turn my disappointment, which seemed like a disaster, and rather view it as a detour that would take me to a new destination. And from that morning, the book was was birthed and the book was called hold on to him because that for me was the key of what andre and i have always done our belief in jesus christ our savior was what carried us through was what gave us hope to continue every day the last two years was very difficult there was a season where Andre for five months had a death wish. Now, a death wish is different to having plans to end your life. You simply wake up in the morning, not really having a desire to live, and you go to bed in the evening with a prayer that God will come to fetch you so that you don't have to wake up tomorrow morning again. In this season, Andre started losing weight. He lost about a kilo a week, and it was very, very upsetting to see that. He lost from 85 kilograms until he weighed, um, I think, 68. And I remember one morning sitting behind my computer and looking at my watch. It was nine o'clock. Andre was away for work and he did not go to the office that Monday. And suddenly fear gripped my heart and I thought, 
I didn't think I should go and check if he's awake. My thought was, you better go and check if he's still alive. And um, he was still alive. I woke him up. And that for me was the turning point because I realized I cannot go on like this. I cannot live with death every day while both of us are still alive and breathing. And so after he had his breakfast, I said to him, this is not, we're in a bad space. We need an emergency appointment with a psychiatrist, which we then arranged. And, and then she said um, he has to be admitted so that she could have a relook at the medication and make some drastic changes. Uh, that was very, very hard for him. Um, he didn't like being hospitalized. It was also a turning point because she eventually booked him off for three months and we could arrive at the realization that he could no longer continue to operate as the CEO of the NGO that he had. And stepping down and handing over to somebody and realizing that he's into a new season and he needs other ways to find meaning was very, very difficult and also very essential. And then our biggest crisis was about a month before lockdown last year happened in 2020 uh, with a pandemic. Uh, we had a conversation one day and I said to Andra, you know, at the moment I'm really concerned because your fantasies to die is more than your fantasies to be alive. I also in that season wrote a blog that said, on whose property are you? And part of what I had to learn as a caregiver and a wife who loves to support her husband was what are the healthy boundaries where my responsibility ends and his responsibility begins because I can be there for him. I can encourage him. I can help him to find perspectives. I cannot live his life for him. I cannot choose life on his behalf. And that is then what this crisis appointment at the psychologist was about. And it was a very, very difficult conversation for 50 minutes of the 60 minutes. And and at that 50 minutes, he, he was still saying, I'm not certain that I'm able to close the door on suicide as an escape. And then she said a beautiful thing. She said, you know, thoughts of suicide can be as enslaving as becoming an alcoholic, that the moment an alcoholic drives by a poster of an alcohol advertisement, his saliva would start secreting. And this is the same thing as you can become so addicted to this escape idea and fantasize so much about making an end to everything, making an end to your suffering that you stop engaging with life. And then she said, you need to take this option off your menu of choices. 
And about two minutes before the end of the session, we said, I hear you, and I choose to take it off. And so we walked out of the psychologist's office that day, holding each other's hands, and really having new hope, because the door on suicide was closed. That was in March of 2020. The week before Andre's self-death was a very normal week. It was lockdown. What was very, very hard for him was that he could not go to the gym because exercising very hard for 90 minutes three times a week was part of his regime of dealing with his depression, making sure those good endorphins are secreted. And it probably took about two weeks into lockdown before he realized, well, he can actually do some form of exercises at home. And, you know, he would do sit-ups and push-ups and all kinds of things until he was sweating profusely. So he really got into that. What one of the grief counselors did say afterwards was, that not being able to go to the gym those three times a week was equal to suddenly being on half of your medication. So it did, it did really was a big blow for him not being able to go to the gym. Then in that last week, uh, he had a session on Zoom with his psychiatrist. And we would always, before a session, talk to each other and say, well, he would ask me, what is my opinion? And that week I said, you know, I don't see any symptoms at the moment of depression. I do think you can give more attention to personal growth and to connection with me. But I don't think there's any symptoms at the moment that I, that I can notice. And so he and the psychiatrist also agreed that he was in a good space he did stress that week very much by realizing that all the training has stopped and it was an important source of income for his NGO, and that caused a lot of stress. We were also actually very excited that week because it was the week in which our first grandchild was born, and we were very excited about becoming a grandfather and grandmother for the first time. The Friday evening before his death, we we usually on a Friday night had pizza and um, a glass of wine. And luckily, we still had a little bit left of our resources. And we got a pizza and we celebrated being grandmother and grandfather. And we watched a movie of Forrest Gump. And I'll always remember that statement in that movie where Forrest is telling a story that he says, Mama says, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And I really did not know what I was going to get the next day. Uh, the next morning, I had a Zoom counseling session with a friend whose son had a suicide attempt that week, and she was very distressed. And as, 
as we started talking, because we were prayer friends, we know each other very well, I started crying. And so as I'm talking to her, I started crying and I say, you know, I'm thinking of that scripture, or she mentioned the scripture in John that says where Jesus said, uh, in the house of my father, there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And I said to her, you know, if your son ends his life or my husband ends his life, we will both be comforted in the knowledge that they are in their heavenly mansion and that they love God and that their suffering is over. That um, afternoon we had coffee together, like we usually did around three o'clock. And we had a conversation and I said, you know, I'm, I'm really very sad about this level of disconnection. And I miss him very much. And in the language of emotional logic, which I was then already qualified in, I asked him, what do you think have I lost? And he looked me straight in the eyes and he said, you've lost me. And I said, yes, and I would very, very much like to get you back again. At that stage, I was doing debriefing work with the nursing staff at Tigerberg Hospital. And I had a permit to drive around and I had a meeting with a colleague to talk about what we were planning to do in the next week and how we could support the nursing staff that was paralyzed by shock. When I drove back after the meeting, I was about 10 minutes from the house and I stopped at a robot that was red. And the next moment I had this flash vision of Andre before my eyes and I saw him dead on the floor in one of our rooms at the house. And I burst into tears and I said, God, what are you showing me? Are you telling me that Andre has ended his life now? And he gently answered, yes. And I drove slowly because I had trouble seeing the road through my tears. And when I got home, I found him exactly as I've seen him in this vision. I did not feel if he still had a pulse because there was, there was such a peace in that room. And I kneeled at him and I touched his knee and I said three things to him. I said, I respect your choice, even though I don't like it, and even though I do not agree with it. The second thing I said is, I choose to forgive you 
And the third thing I said was, I release you into the joy of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Your suffering has ended. And then I got up and called um, a friend who studied with Andre, who's also a minister of religion. And I called a doctor friend of ours, and um, he and his wife came, and our pastor friend came, and they were with me from five o'clock that afternoon when I found him until 10 o'clock that evening when the ambulance finally left with his body. And I felt so cushioned and supported by their presence. We were just quiet together and our doctor friend had the wisdom to put on his um, his white coat with his name on and his stethoscope around his neck. Yeah, it was like, it was almost surreal, but there was such a peace, a peace, really the serenity, the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding. And so even in my shock, I really immediately moved into acceptance, which I think is really just a gift from God. Because so families struggle for so long afterwards to accept the choice of self-death. What was challenging in the season immediately after this was not only all the practical arrangements around Andre's death, but also to get the necessary approval that my daughter and son-in-law from Pretoria could travel down um, and be with us. And lots of decisions that had to be made. And even in all of that, I had such a deep thankfulness because I remember the previous week in a session with the nurses, I talked to them and said, we are sterilizing our hands. You are putting on your protective gear. You're wearing a mask. How do we cushion our hearts, our souls, our spirit against all the injuries of the traumas that we are facing. And looking back, this is one of the things that I'm so aware of, is how with that vision, 10 minutes before I found Andre, God really cushioned me and really prepared me for the shock of what I would find home. And so in all of this, there was really for me a theme of thankfulness. Many people have such issues with self-death in, 
in in the spiritual sense of asking, uh, where is my loved one now? Even though I know he knew Christ, um, it is against the instructions of the Bible to end your own life. And I just had such peace knowing that the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross when he died for us is so complete that nothing that a human do can make that undone. And for me, Andre just jumped straight into God's arms that day. And I really, up till this day, even though I mourn him and grieve him and miss him terribly, I really accept his choice. And I wrote a blog uh, about autonomy. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is I had a conversation with somebody, the father of a girl who committed suicide 18 years ago. And he said that every day he is still feeling angry at himself, still feeling guilty and thinking there must have been something he could have done differently. And I say to him, but you are in a prison and she's been set free 18 years ago already. And I see in my conversations with people how difficult it is for them to become unstuck out of those combined emotions that can really stop and halt the grief process. And so I really am thankful for my level of acceptance. Then there was a, a week, well, basically two days after Andre's death, he was in the process of presenting a course to students on Zoom. And of course, they were all very, very shocked by his death. And so they invited me into a debriefing session because they wanted not to have class that night. They wanted to talk about Andre, who was their beloved teacher. And so they invited me as a gesture of showing me support. And afterwards, I told my children about it and said it was really very touching. But of course, you know who debriefed whom in the end. And that was simply the reality of that time is that God also gave me the grace to comfort other people in, in my own pain. And then, you know, in grief, there's always the absolutely unexpected things. So the very next week, there was a whole week Zoom course and there was nobody but me to say, okay, I'll co coordinate and I'll organize and I'll set it up. And so I was there for them. And five minutes before the Zoom meeting started on the Monday, the gate bell rang. And I said, just excuse me a moment. And as I walked out and got to the gate and opened it, there was a lady who said, oh, I'm from the funeral parlor. Here is your husband's ashes. My word. I closed that gate and walked back in a complete daze. And that was really when... Denial was a good coping mechanism because I kind of walked into the house, walked into Andre's office, opened a drawer and stuffed it in there and decided that I'll revisit that experience that evening. But for now, 
I have to focus on something more important, which was the training of these students. And so that is really part and parcel of, of grieving is that things can trigger you at the most awkward moments and just pop up and say, sure, take note, you are mourning the love of your life. So there was lots of, of very important things to simply take responsibility for in the first two weeks. The gift of the pandemic for us was that we could do a recording of his, his memorial and do a celebration of his life, which was then watched by many of his students that over the years was impacted by his training. And basically three weeks after his death, I was able to go away for two weeks for mourning purposes. And I learned a few very important things in that time that I would love to share. I went for grief counseling and these five very important self-care questions to ask yourself when you lose a loved one. Are you eating? Are you sleeping? Are you exercising? And really it's about simply walking around the block if that's all you can manage. And you develop an easy routine for your day because you've completely lost your routine and your rhythm. And then a beautiful one, really permission to cry as often as you feel a need to. And the reason for that is that the structure of your tears differ for different emotions. And when you cry tears of bereavement, there are toxins in your tears that are excreted with your tears. And if you would suppress your tears and choose not to cry, those toxins will stay in your body and can actually make your body sick. Isn't it wonderful how God designed us that our tears can actually be part of our healing? Then there was grief tasks, things like deciding what to do with Andre's ashes. And we eventually, as a family, met uh, when a lockdown, hard lockdown was over and decided to put his ashes in the sea at Great Brack River where we used to go on holidays when the girls were small. And that only happened in October when we could all be together again. And that was actually really for all of us a big shift, brought a big shift in our mourning process that we were able to say goodbye on that level and that we could actually all experience that it took our grief to a next level of being more peaceful about it because we've been able to say those goodbyes. And then we learned as a family that we need to absolutely respect that we all have an individual process. One of the things that was essential for me at that um, throwing of the ashes was that everybody would say that they forgive him. And my one daughter said, Mom, I'm not there yet. 
I, I'm not able to forgive yet and to respect that. And the other thing was to learn that there's no clock to grieving. We used to say um, healthy mourning is two to five years, and um, it can even go beyond that. So part of the grief tasks after a month for me was to decide to donate Andre's clothing and also to learn that um, part of this individual journey is determined by what was your relationship like? What, what is your coping mechanisms? How do you interact with yourself? I, for example, had to learn to really communicate with my body. So sometimes my, my heart would have a physical ache, absolute physical pain. And I would need to sit down and say, heart, what are you telling me? Because our body cannot send us a WhatsApp. It sends us an emotion. And if we would be so respectful to stop and consider what that emotion is trying to tell us, we can actually come into better synchronization with, with what our body is saying and needing from us in that moment. Then what happened for me was that after seven months, I realized I could no longer afford the rent of the house where we were living on our own. And I moved in January to a new town. And what is really helpful for me in my process of mourning now is that Andre is not part of my picture of my day here. And so there obviously are still moments where I miss him intensely. And I also had to learn that the end of somebody's life on earth when he dies, is not the end of your relationship with that person. It is just the parameters that have changed. So when I look at the movie, he can no longer hold my hand, and I can no longer ask him, is that scene past now? Can I look again? <laughs> and, and so those are the things that change. But I can walk out in the evening on the deck and see the stars and say, he loved stargazing. And so that was also one of the things to Sally's telescope and his stargazing books and to let go of that loss of having it as part of the furniture in the house. And now when I look at the stars, I say, I can say, I see you, my beloved, you shine brightly. Annette, what are other things that have helped you process Andre's death? Hmm. I am luckily very much in contact with my own emotions and I also love to read because I believe that our problems are our teachers. And so like depression was my teacher for many years that shaped me and molded me and helped me to grow. Death was now my teacher. There's a specific book that really was very helpful for me to understand the process of grief. It's called Grieving the Loss of a Loved One, and it is written by Norman Wright. 
Then the girls and I had a grief circle once a week where we would meet on WhatsApp video call. And I would choose a specific theme from this book and we would simply talk about where we're at, where we feel stuck, how we are missing Andre, what we are missing about him, and really became a support system for each other in a whole new way. What also helped me tremendously and still does is that uh, in March, before Andre's death, I qualified as the first social worker in South Africa who specialized as in emotional logic. I became a coach and now also a trainer in emotional logic. It is a theory on emotions that was developed by Dr. Trevor Griffiths from England uh, in the 1990s. He took some of the work of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and added two more emotions, namely uh, shock and guilt uh, to the process that she has already charted and then made a magnificent connection between that our emotions are the messengers that tells us about our values. And so very often after Andre's death, I would sit down and do a card pattern of my emotions and make a list of the losses. And that really helped me tremendously. Yes, I was fortunate enough to attend your two-hour introduction to emotional logic, and it is so practical. Um, it was the first time in my life that I really saw in visual shape how the emotions fit together. And uh, it's, it's so helpful if you are struggling with an emotion, especially if it's upsetting your day, and you can just go to the chart and see where it fits in. And also the work is all done in a non-judgmental fashion. So you don't have to be mm. angry mm. with yourself with feeling this or that emotion. Yes, and I think that's the beauty of I love teaching people that emotions are not good or bad. They are not right or wrong. They are comfortable or uncomfortable. And our emotions determine our sense of well-being or we feel completely overwhelmed because we simply do not understand or have like a map to understand our emotions with. And so for me, I think this is such a key that from the pain of Andre's death and from learning now emotional logic that I can teach people about unrecognized grief. And unrecognized grief is disappointments that you actually carry for so long with you that they kind of become like a pile-up accident on the highway, but you've never stopped and recognized them and say, I've lost this and I'm mourning that and actually give yourself respectfully the opportunity to do so. And what I've learned only after Andre's death is how emotions 
can become a whirlpool so that, for example, you can have a mixture of anger and depression. But that anger perhaps does not have a healthy outlet. And then that anger turns upon yourself. So when you feel angry, you feel depressed because you feel powerless. And when you feel depressed, uh, you feel anxious because, you know, there's just no way, no way out and you doubt yourself. And what I learned is that suicide is actually not an indication that you're mentally ill. It's an indication of a thought pattern because you are stuck in a mixed emotion world of different whirlpools. And that I now can teach people. So what, what is your whirlpool and how can you step out of it? And that is for me really magnificent. That emotional logic is about understanding where you're stuck. And at the same time, learning what can you do to recover a sense of influence over your life. Yes, I think clarity is something that makes all the difference when one is suffering, isn't it? Yes, and to know that when you are dealing with grief and with a loss, it's the loss, but at the same time, it's also about restoration. And we we kind of going to and fro between those two different poles of the loss and the restoration and and how to find movement in there. And that is really, for me, the beauty of what you said now that it's so practical is that I'm so aware that when I've done a session with somebody on Zoom, I send them two pictures afterwards the picture of the emotion cards as they have unpacked it and discovered visually what is actually inside their heart and also the list of the values that we have identified and which ones they can make a smart plan to take back. And what I realized the other day is that in the past when I went to see a counselor, we would talk, but I would not walk out of there with something physically in my hand. And that's why these tools are for me so powerful because people can look back at it and say, okay, that's what I'm feeling. No wonder I feel so overwhelmed. And these are the things that I'm lo I've lost. And what can I do to take it back? So there's such a sense of new empowerment. And that really gives me hope for where we are at a society that lives so much in being paralyzed by shock at the moment, that there is a way to regain our sense of inner strength and emotional well-being. Yes, and you and I have decided before our podcast that this is basically all we can say about emotional logic because it is so practical that you can't really go on talking about it with, without coming <laughs> to, to what you say, the visual side. Doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This testifies to the practicality of emotional logic, which I'm very glad I, I have discovered through you. Annette, can you just uh, shortly tell us about the services you provide and then give us the name of your website? At the moment, I'm doing a two-hour Zoom lecture called Are You Tired of Being on an Emotional Seesaw? 
And it is such a success that I'm considering making it a prerequisite before people have individual counseling, because all the key concepts are explained there in a group scenario in complete safety. People do not share anything personally. It's basically me talking 90% of the time. Um, simply giving understanding and explaining diagrams and visual pictures to help people to learn how to befriend their emotions. Apart from that, I'm also presenting a full day training with three practical case-based sessions after that, and people either do that for their personal development to learn how to manage and respect their emotions better, or they do that uh, at the moment there's a number of ministers of religion, social workers, psychologists, uh, coaches that do the training in order to use it in their counselling. So then I also provide individual counselling on Zoom and uh, I love it that I can work on a safe distance and make a difference for other people. And your website's address? Website address is www.growwithanet.co.za. Yes, I'll also attach the link to the podcast. And now, please, for your three best tips on grieving. My first tip on grieving is to read, to understand. I've already mentioned that book that has been very helpful for me. So I've read a number of books about grief and I've really took time to understand the process. And what I understand now is that you cannot put grief in a box and go and put it away in the garage. It will find a way to become undone and put a foot into the front door where you cannot close the door upon it again. It will show up unexpectedly without warnings, and that is simply how it is. You need to go with the flow of grief. It will not adapt to you. Secondly, journaling. Writing with your hand is not only creative, it is therapeutic, and it's on a different level than typing on a computer. So I wrote blogs after Andre's death that is on my website, which really helped me as a good, healthy outlet and also perspective on what I'm feeling. And thirdly, I often made the remark until I learned to stop doing now is my, my first of all, the statement is to respect your emotions. Because I've often said I've finished grieving now and it only came to bite me again. Uh, and I realized I cannot say that. I don't know when I will be finished grieving. And I actually don't need to know when that will have to happen. But definitely point number three is respect your emotions and go with the flow of it. And then perhaps a quote from a movie that made an impact on me and Andre. There's a movie called The Astronauts, and it's about uh, a woman balloonist, and um, she's taking up this meteorologist to believe that there is a way to predict the weather. And in the Astronauts movie, it says, 
you don't simply change the world by looking at it. You change it by the way you live in it. Together, we have brought the stars closer. And that is what Andre and I did. Thank you, Annette. And now, on a lighter note, it is time for your fun question. Can I ask you one? You're welcome. Now, Annette, as someone who dearly loves the ocean, if you could be any creature living in the ocean or on the beach, and that could be one of the creatures we know or a creature from your imagination or from a fairy tale, which one would you be? Hmm. I will be a mermaid surfer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> With very, very beautiful, long, long hair. And there's a very good reason for the surfing idea. Because at um, the beginning of 2020, I had a dream. And in the dream, I sensed that God was saying to me, there is a tsunami of destruction coming. Get your surfboard ready because I will change it into a wave of opportunity for you. When COVID-19 struck, I thought, okay, this is my opportunity to do emotional logic with the nursing staff and that is how I will change this tsunami and turn it into an opportunity. When Andre died, I realized it was actually about my personal tsunami with my beloved's death. And then I learned that I need to respectfully ride the small waves in order to prepare and practice for the big waves. But part of riding the small waves was to respect my own journey of mourning, my own emotions. And now I can be that beautiful mermaid and I can ride the wave and say, there's hope, there's hope. Because acceptance is the combination in the one hand of the hurt of disappointment and in the other hand to hold on to God and say, he is my hope. And that is my prayer that people who listen to this will find their own balancing act on their surfboard of life between hurt and hope. Thank you, Annette. Thank you for this, all of this. Thank you, Marie, for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And then to our listeners, thank you for listening. If you found this episode meaningful, Please share it with someone you care about. It would be greatly appreciated if you would rate and review the podcast series where you download your podcasts. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, Mariette Sneeman, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 